This is the Marcus Rose Money Show. I'm here with Taylor Simpson, who's one of my teammates at Code Brown. He's been one of my best friends for well over seven years. And we're also actually housemates slash husband and wife. Now, we know each other really well. And Taylor's put in a lot of work behind the scenes to both of my projects. We realize that the tens of listeners don't really know much about Taylor. And they should because he deserves his moment in the sun. So this episode is just going to be all about him. So I'll kick it over to you, man. Let's start with your origin story and just give us, I guess, the cliff notes on your life so far. Yeah, sure, man. So I grew up in the country town of Wyala. I spent most of my early years at the beach. When I wasn't at the beach, uh, I was terrorizing the streets on my BMX bike with my mates. Shout out to Tyler, Costa, Liam, Matt, if you're somehow listening. The four boys. Are you still in touch with any of those guys? Uh, Matt, a little bit. Not really the other guys. It's a bit hard keeping up that uh, that those links when like, I transition up here. Yeah, you moved down here, right? And they stayed in Wyala, did yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I've seen them a few times here and there. Not not super regularly. Yep. So anyway, lots of time at the beach and on the BMX. Yeah, man. And music was also a pretty big part of my life. So when my brother finished high school and was looking to come to Adelaide for uni, um, I auditioned at Marrickville High School for their specialist music program. And basically, to the amazement of everyone around me, I was accepted into so that. So talk about that, man. They were surprised that you got in. So what's the, what's the story there? Yeah, a little bit. So um, I just said, they were sleeping on you. Very much so. Being a guitarist, they're very renowned for not being able to read music. Um, there's this yeah. thing called tablature. It's basically a representation of the six strings on a page and you mark out number one to 24 to represent the frets. And that's how you go. You just go, that string, that number, that's your note. Kind of like a cheats way of reading music, yeah, right? 100%. It's yeah, 100%. It's just a lot quicker to be able to translate tab to playing than it is music to playing. Well, there's no real need, right, for a guitarist to be able to read it the proper way or the normal way? Nah. I, yeah, wasn't like super, super well-versed in the theory component. I had spent five or six years playing piano. And so it wasn't totally foreign to me. But when I was auditioning, hadn't been doing it for a couple of years. And, and those auditions, were you playing stuff off the cuff or were you having to read sheet music? No, no, I was all playing it off the cuff. So that, that was good. I, I was pretty good at memorizing everything. So yeah. just, just walk in with guitar, no, no music, no nothing. Just get up and play. So you could keep your limitation hidden. Yeah, exactly. And they obviously enjoyed it. So you get in and you move down to Adelaide at 15, 16, you said? Yeah, around year 10, start of year 10. Yeah, and talk to us a bit about life from them, moving down to Adelaide and, and going to school with a new bunch of people and the music program. Talk a bit about all of those things, man. Yeah, before we get into that, I'll just go back to kind of the childhood. Very big into sports. The biggest ones are basketball, swimming. Yeah, but you ended up sticking with swimming, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that ended up being the big one that took over my life, basically. And when I moved down to Adelaide for school, I joined the Nord Swimming Club. Shout out to Isaac. Hey, who's sitting right with us? He is. You won't see that, but he's here. And I continue on with the club until my retirement. And you retired at what age? I believe it was 21. Which is interesting because how close to your peak do you reckon you are? And what's like, I guess, the standard age that swimmers tend to peak? Oh, I'd peaked for sure. As in your, your times were going backwards? They weren't or? going backwards. I was still improving, but not at a meaningful rate. And, you know, I was making national times. I was somewhat competitive, but... For all intents and purposes, I'd peaked. For most people, a lot of guys, you know, they're, they're kind of peaking more towards the 24, 25. But as I was saying, I was definitely up there in the sport, but not quite at the levels to continue on. Yeah. And that 2021 20, age is the age where young adults tend to drop out of lots of different sports, right? But especially swimming because that time commitment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in the high performance squad, we were training anywhere between 25 to 30 hours a week, which is big commitment when you're trying to juggle other things like uni and whatnot yeah and talk to me a bit about those other things man so you obviously go through school and knock that off yep and i was pretty set at what i wanted to do after uni in terms of career and what were you thinking i was thinking engineering um that's what i was kind of thinking my, my whole life there'd never really been any any change or fluctuation in that I'm just interested in how things work and yeah how, how they work and designing solving problems you know i had also other avenues i wanted to pursue so i ended up deferring uni for that year so i could focus on both swimming and sound engineering. So you take a year off to, and I mean, well, very glad that you did because yeah. you've, you've helped me out tremendously here with this, with this setup yeah, and all this gear. Finally getting a bit of use out of that degree. Yeah. So talk to me, you take the year off man. you defer uni uh -huh, uh -huh. and yeah, talk to me a bit about that experience working with the sound stuff. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun, great time 
great time there. We actually ended up recording a South Park episode. No shit, really? Yeah, and we did everything from all the vocals, the foley, all the sound effects for it, and also working with old tape machines. Jeez, that's an experience. Getting rid of the computer, not being able to, you know, chop and change edits. And what's the point of that? It's just got a different sound to it, man. There's like something you can't really reproduce on digital equipment. A lot of artists still will record directly to tape. There's this thing about the frequency response that you get onto it that's very unique to it. Yeah. And you said before you always felt like you were going to go down the engineering pathway yeah. Yeah. and talk to me a bit about, so you tacked that year off and did your feelings about engineering change at all? Yeah, no, nah, it didn't change at all. I was still very much focused going down the line of the, the engineering pathway. And then you go to uni, you enroll in what degree is it? Yeah, so I spent six years studying a double degree in aerospace engineering and space science astrophysics. Yeah, it was six years of pain, basically. But you loved <laughs> pain it, right? And suffering. Yeah, yeah, it was all great content. Absolutely frothed it. Really enjoyed learning and the process, all the subjects. That was great. The only issue was the fucking, you know, assignments. You enjoy learning, but not so much the stress of having multiple things pile up. Yeah, of like showing someone else that you've learned through their very narrow framework that says yeah. you've learned it. To tick their box. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, if you don't answer it in the exact way that I want you to answer it, that's just wrong. It's like, well, that's, that's not actually like an engineering, bro. And now I'm working full-time as an aerospace engineer for a company called Ballistic Systems. So it's all worked out? It's all worked out. And if we just wind back to your time at uni as well, and you worked part-time as well, obviously, which is how we met. Yeah, so, yeah, so talk to me a bit about the work you did while you going to uni. At the end of my gap year, that's when I got my first job at Waterworld. It was, yeah, absolutely fantastic time in my life. Probably the best gig you can get going through uni. Oh, absolutely. It's just something about being at an outdoor pool, you know, in summer, the sun's shining, tunes over the sound system, yeah. everyone's having a good time, lots of zooper doopers getting handed out. Yeah, everyone's up and about. Great environment. So, yeah, man, I guess moving on from there, let's talk a bit about how, like the story of how you got started investing. Yeah, sure. So I've been working for a few years and built up, you know, fifteen dollars $20,000 and it was sitting around not really doing anything. This is a couple of seasons in, so you're like, what, 20, 21? Yeah, about 20. My brother, my mum and I, we'd just moved up to Adelaide a few years prior. Was that, did the whole family move up when he went to uni and you came here for school? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So my, yeah, mum, brother and I, we all moved up here. Dad, he stayed in Wyala to run his dental business and he'd commute up on weekends. He's Wyala's go-to dentist, right? 100%, yeah. definitely was. And everything was going really well with that situation until uh, dad passed away unexpectedly. So this left my mum with a lot of financial strain. Things just kept popping up left, right yeah. and centre. And all that financial stuff while you're going through, like, I guess, processing that emotional stress of losing a loved one as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of the last thing you need, really. Mm. Um, but that experience and going through that with your, your mum and your brother, that shaped how you approach your finances, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's given me a lot of perspective, I'd say, on, on life and the way you approach that. And I started asking myself questions like, what can I do to avoid putting myself in a position like that? Thinking of different scenarios, different pathways I can take to kind of uh, alleviate that from, you know, emanating from a situation that I'm in. And so with that experience there, talk to me a bit about how that translated into getting started investing in shares for you. Yeah, so kind of having that and asking myself those kinds of questions. Over the years, I'd also overhear conversations with my granddad talking about shares in the market and how he and my nan were kind of living off the income that those shares were providing and you know the coming doing this for, for 20 years so cruising that one is really cruising very very much cruising sounded like the way to go you know chilling at home doing whatever it is they're doing making money yeah live their life do whatever you want sign me up yeah like if they can if they can do this starting at 60 or 65 why can't you do this starting at at 20 20 yeah like, yeah why not What's holding you back? Okay, so talk me through how that start looked like for you. Yeah, so you know, I, I started researching shares in the market, playing around with compound interest calculators. Hello, we got one of those. Hell yeah. And you do. built it, right? Yeah, yeah, look, I love all that uh, back-end math, so. Yeah, so up on marcusrose.com.au slash how good can it be? That's all Taylor's work. We love him for it. Anyway. Yeah, so, you know, this piqued my interest seeing the graph, you know, I've put in this amount initially and... SY match in each month after that with some you know yearly return looking at that that big number in 15 20 yeah. years yeah they get real big yeah, right yeah real big so yeah. a lot of excel spreadsheets were made from this hey we love a good spreadsheet we love a good spreadsheet so anyway you hear about stories about your granddad and then yeah so i'd done a bit of we'll call it research and bought a bunch of companies jumped in been hooked ever since and a bit about how that's how that approach has evolved over time right yeah so i've Probably gone through about three stages. Initially, I was 
fully invested just in companies. This was doing very, very basic research. Yeah, and it was a bit like, oh, this person said this is good. Yeah, the, yeah. the chart's going up recently. Yeah. Let's let's have some of that, right? Yeah, exactly. It was very, very low-level research going on, if you'd even call it research. Which is kind of how lots of people start, right? Just yeah. dabbling and, and messing around. But you weren't putting in like big life-changing amounts. Nah, nah. It was, you know, very small parcel size. almost the minimum you could go right. with, you know, a handful of companies. It wasn't, as you say, it wasn't big dollar values. And then what happened after that? So after about four or five months of doing that, kind of realized I don't have a fucking clue what I'm going on about here. So um, we're like, we've got to change something here. And that's when I found uh, indexes. And I kind of went, you know, about 60, 40 into indexes and companies. Sold out a lot of those companies and bought into mainly two indexes, the Vanguard Total US, which is basically S&P 500, and the Vanguard Australian, I think it's the SX 200, that yeah. it kind of tracks. Yeah, yeah, correct. And I stuck with that for the next 12 months or so, leaving yeah, the majority of my money in indexes and 40% in companies that I was kind of you know mucking around with, still, still playing basically. Yeah, and still learning a bit about all those different businesses and, and how they connect and like the value they add to the world, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So after that 12 months, what, what happens after that? After that 12 months, we uh, sold out of those indexes. And what led to that? What were you thinking then? So I was just a bit more confident in my abilities of what I was doing, how I was researching the companies, how I was evaluating them. But that took you that took you a year and a half to get to, right? All yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, and maybe even that was too soon. I felt confident, but I, you know, start, I also felt all right about just yeeting into a handful of companies I really knew nothing about. Yep, so you sell out of those index funds, mm. the ASX 200 one and the S&P 500 one yes. Yes. and go primarily into companies. Talk a bit about those individual companies that you're interested in then. And what do we, that's now like two or three years ago now? Yeah, no, pretty, yeah, around three years ago. So initially, a lot of the companies were like small companies. I think then like the companies that I'm at now, um, I think to be honest, I've held most of them for over two years. Yeah, so now you're set and you're cruising and you're happy with those, I guess, those core companies in your portfolio that are just ticking away. And how often would you say you, you buy or sell new ones? It, it'd be less than three times a year. It's, yeah, nice. It's not often that we're, uh, we're making changes and usually it's adding to what we've got. Yeah, because so often, right, for you to have bought an investment previously, it's because it was your very best idea. So it makes sense that a lot of the times when you saved up more money that you're looking to put in, that you're going to buy a company that you already think is one of the best ones out there, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think this is something you've said before, but there's a lot of companies out there. You don't have to swing at every single one of them. Yeah. You might miss one here or there, but if you've hit a few winners along the way, you're going to be doing very well for yourself. Yeah. All you need is those like four or five really big ones that have those life-changing results. And those are usually the ones that make a lot of sense to you. You don't have to go out and find the ones that are on the fringes or in the shadows that you don't really completely understand. You can wait for those ones to come to you where you like your eyes light up and you're like, holy shit, like I need to get me some of this. Anyway, man, that's a bit about the stocks. Talk a bit about your approach to work because we were quite similar, I think, in that we went really hard to save as much money as we could early. And I remember in the summers, man, you'd load up on like 55, 60 plus hour weeks between the two pools. So just talk a bit about that approach to, to working money for you and how that's evolved since. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I've never really needed a lot to be happy. I've always kind of lived a fairly minimalistic lifestyle, yeah, I guess. We yeah, guess. we both have very simple lives. Yeah. And now we do that together, yeah, right? Okay. Here at Ramsey Avenue. Anyway, continue. So kind of when I started learning about investing and you know going down that pathway basically pumped every single dollar I had into it I set a, a bunch of goals in terms of percentages of income into shares and that okay so you set that up and what kind of percentages were you looking at putting aside for investments yeah so at the beginning it was ridiculously high like 80 percent yeah 80, right 80%. while you're living at home and yeah yeah because I basically had zero expenses right I just didn't have expenses I didn't <laughs> I didn't have a need for money <laughs> really <laughs> I wasn't buying shit so I was just working and it was just building up in that bank account and it was like well put it somewhere let's put it to use and after the investing train i was like that's that's where it's going so yeah basically around that yeah 80 85 percent and you did that for how long the whole time you're at uni or up until the beginning of this year yeah right so it's like five five and a half years just saving and pumping it in basically whenever i get paid i'd instantly transfer you know that amount of money into my brokerage account and not touch it once it's in it's in it's never coming out never has never will well, maybe it will, but... Not until, like, you retire or... <laughs> not, not, not until, you know, down the track. Personally, I believe the early years of investing are some of the most important. It's kind of kind of how compound interest works. The more you have in earlier, the 
the more it will grow over time. The more you put in earlier, the less you need to put in later, yeah. right? Because later on you can just cruise and yeah. it's all you've already built up that nest egg and it's all there. Yeah. So the the kind of mindset was put as much in as early as possible. And as you kind of alluded to, this ended up with me working two jobs, 60 plus hours a week every summer, working every single shift that I could. Yeah, you hustled. Yeah, yeah. And it was great. Like the more I worked, the more that 10% that I could uh, spend, 10, 15% that I could spend was. So I was like, oh, great. I've got a hundred bucks this week. Let's go. (laughs) And and what were you spending it on? What were you... What were your guilty pleasures, I guess, while you're putting 80, 85% of your money away, yeah. which is massive, right? That's huge for, yeah. I don't think like not many people do that. No. Like that's a big credit to you, how disciplined and I guess how much you prioritize that. But what were those little pleasures in that 10%? That, that'd be like fucking a uni pub crawl or something that would nice. come along, you know, you buy the shirt, you go have a couple of drinks with your mates or... A big night on the fist. Yeah. I mean, or just... The wool shed? Oh, the shed. Oh, the shed news came later. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. News came later. Yep. So, and what about now, man? Now you've you've built that up. You're, we're five, six years in. You're, yeah, yeah. We're like we're cruising now, and talk to me a bit about how you've you've loosened up a bit on that, right? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So, like I said, I stuck with that you know 85 percent framework till the start of this year, yep. and there was two big reasons for the switch up. Firstly, moving out of home with my wife. Yeah, um, we'll <laughs> let's go. The living expenses have gone up. They've gone from zero to something yeah but still like we live we still live very simple lives right like yeah. there's there's not a whole lot of yeah. money out no, no 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 but it still you know decreased that percentage and secondly i've had a you know fairly successful start to the investing career over the past three years averaged around the 50 percent mark Huge. which is not quite on your level oh, but but uh, it's done good things for me Huge. It's, done, it's done good things so when i'm getting those kind of returns for the portfolio it's basically generating much more than i'm putting yeah, we're both the same. Once you get, once you've built it up, and you're getting those like huge double-digit returns. Yeah, you could essentially stop putting anything in, and it'd cruise on, and you wouldn't notice much difference. But that's not the way I'm quite approaching it. You know, I'm not really taking my foot off the pedal. I'm still going fairly hard, but you know, I've allocated a small percentage of my income to you know fun life things, whether it be full drive motorbike. Yeah, so you love your full, you, your full drive, your jet ski. You've just recently gone out and bought a motorbike. Yes. yes. Yeah. So a bit of a, still a bit of a, the wild daredevil comes out again. Yeah. 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 Can't get rid of it. You know, you're not, you're not risking your life at some point. What's, what's, what's the point? point? <laughs> Let's just go back to, so that investment percentage when you were at uni, you said was up around the 80, 85%. Do you yeah. have any idea what that looks like now? Or do you still model that? Or you just kind of whatever's left over? Nah, I mean, it's probably close to 40%. Mm-hmm. Though, so it's, you know, dropped quite a bit, but it's still 40% of your, of your net yeah. Yeah, income. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Still means I'm, you know, fairly disciplined in what I'm spending, but, you know, living comfortably, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned before that you tend to only buy three or four times a year. Mm. Do you tend to do that on, is there a schedule or you wait for your savings to get to a certain amount before you pump more money in? Or does it depend on when you see a really good opportunity or a combination of three? How do you see that? Yeah, I mean, it's not really regular. It's not set by a dollar value or a, time of the year or anything like that it's kind of yeah when i'm reading on a clear picture in my head of which company is kind of worth the investment and i've got a, a large enough parcel size that i'm wanting to dump it in it's not super set that's fair yeah just off the cuff just yeah. make it up as you go kind of thing yeah i mean that's basically how i've done most of the year so let the world come to you yeah. taking a quick break from investing let's talk a bit more about your I guess take this whatever way you want, man, like your personal or your professional life. Like what do you kind of, you say you're um, working in the aerospace engineering field at Ballistics now. Yes. Talk a bit about what you're building towards there or yeah, what's your, like aside from money, what else drives you and what else are you, are you looking forward to? Yeah, sure. So yeah, start off in the professional area first. So a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment, it wasn't the original direction that I was planning on taking. Where'd, where'd you want to go? Uh, the goal was definitely space vehicle design and propulsion engineering. It still is now? That's the direction you want to go? Yeah, and that's still still definitely where I'd like to end up, whether that be with ballistic systems where I am now. And there is potential for this. It looks like they're moving they want to try and move towards that. Towards space sector for sure. Yeah, right. For sure. So whether it's with them or if it's, you know, with someone else in, in a few years' time. So it's going to space. And yeah. or or creating the vehicles that get to space. My initials will be engraved on something that gets oh, to space. Woo-hoo. And talk to me, tell me about that interest in space, what that's come from, how that's developed and what the attraction is there for you. I mean, it's just venturing into the unknown, right? Going somewhere that hasn't really been explored before or designing something for 
a environment that's so foreign to our own that you're you're kind of always thinking, oh, if I do this, if I design it in this way, is this going to work in this scenario? And kind of thinking through all the different case studies in your head, it's it's something that's just really mentally stimulating. Yeah, well, there's like an unlimited amount of variables you have to take into consideration, right? Yeah. And so many of which you just don't know the answer to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's where I guess all the, the testing and, you know, companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, and they just put stuff up and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. It's the best way to do it. You just yeah. try it and see what doesn't work because something that you might think works doesn't and something you think wouldn't work does and you're not going to know unless you actually try it. So why not just slap it together? And- yeah, it's like the whole move fast let things break and then just fix them where they break and you just incrementally get closer and closer, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, so professionally we're headed to space. We're going, yeah. And yep. was there anything else personally you wanted to touch on quickly or? Yeah, I mean, obviously the big personal one was, uh, you know, building towards that financial freedom, financial independence. For anyone listening that wants to make a start, the earlier you do, the better. It's never too late. And, you know, touching back on the four-wheel drive, can't, you know, got to get back to it. Um, oh, sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> nah, so like, I didn't realize it was that big a deal. <laughs> nah, as I'm getting a bit more interested, you know, that full driving camping scene, I've kind of taken on myself to design like, you know, a whole new tray system for the back of the car. Nice. Um, yeah, after spending, you know, three nights away in Lincoln National Park, two in Coffins. Um, That's Port Lincoln and Coffin Bay in South Australia for our interstate listeners, two of the, uh, the finest spots in South Australia and probably the world. Absolutely pristine. So yeah, we've just got a lot of ideas of how I want that to look and function. To cap it off, most important goal in my life right now, bringing home the 2021-2022 Summer Season Championship, Code Brown. Oh, huge. We'll get back to Code Brown a little later because we do have a couple of listener questions that have been sent in targeted on Code Brown. Yeah. So we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. That's huge though, man. That's that's definitely our shared ambition. That's a big one that's been a few seasons in the making. But uh, first we'll go to... You've brought a couple of featured companies along to the show for us to discuss yeah. today. Now, the two you mentioned to me are two ones that I've never covered myself or like never been invested in. We've got NVIDIA and Sonos. So we'll kick it off with NVIDIA, man. Just tell me a bit about them, what they do and what makes you so interested in them. Yeah, so NVIDIA are primarily a graphics card manufacturer and graphics processing unit designer. They produce a wide range of graphics cards for PC use, console use to supercomputing and artificial intelligence. NVIDIA were actually the first to pioneer the GPUs before them. They didn't exist. Right. So, and what's the difference between a GPU and just like a standard chip or like the other one? Because there's lots of chip makers out there, right? What's What makes their GPUs different or better? Yeah, sure. So, GPUs are like the graphical processing units. They are the one that display the pretty pictures on your screen. Okay. The other big one are CPUs. So, they're... Just central processing unit? Yeah. And they are basically what runs the computer. They will do everything else. And the big difference between the two, CPUs are better at handing kind of individual tasks really fast. GPUs are better at processing information in parallel. And that's better for visual applications where you want a lot of pixels to be processed at the exact same time. And the first uh, interaction I had with them is when I was building computers and looking at you know all the different components that go into that and graphics cards being obviously a big one for, for gaming. And they were basically the you know the dominant force in the in the processing market. Nvidia went first with the GPU and kind of have that that first mover advantage, right, with their technology and their approach. Have other companies like your AMD or Intel since started building their own, or what what does that look like? I guess that competitive landscape. Yeah, sure. So in terms of other chip makers, you're mentioning a single company, AMD. Oh right, there's only one. There is only one, AMD and. Uh, NVIDIA are the, the two. What about ASML and Taiwan Semiconductor? Or are they pieces that go into the chips? Yeah, yeah. So they're, so they're, so they're the parts that go into the chip. But in terms of the actual graphics processing units, you've got, you got the two companies. Intel is looking at building their own GPU and they do have like integrated processing units on some of their CPUs. And speaking of NVIDIA's, what they're trying to do, they've gone out and tried to buy ARM for $40 billion. Yes. What does that do for them and how does that help their business? Yeah, so I think it was last September is when they entered into the agreement to buy ARM for the $40 billion. It was a deal that was supposed to take around 18 months to go through. And we're, I think, 12 months in at the moment. And, and they're now saying September 2022 or something? Yeah, looking to balloon past the, the 18 months, obviously. There's a bit of an issue because ARM is a UK-based company that's partially owned by China. Oh, right. That's interesting. And obviously, a US company is trying to buy ARM, so there's you know, a lot of claimed national security concerns going on, probably a bit more political. Yeah, getting a bit 
getting a bit spicy with who they're selling chips to as well um, with American companies not really you know there's a lot of blacklisted Chinese companies for America and that's not the case for the European companies so with US company buying UK company that deals with a lot of Chinese businesses yeah. that are blacklisted in America yeah, mm. yeah. red flags yeah exactly of exactly. course so with that aside though because like that's obviously a wait and see no one knows yeah. what will happen in, in that space what yeah. does buying arm do for nvidia as a company and how does that improve them going forward yeah so arm develops a lot of like processor architecture and then licenses this to other companies they don't manufacture the chips themselves they'll design them and then pass them off so they design the chips that nvidia makes uh no so they design their own say gpus and cpus that are completely separate to Nvidia, okay. mainly CPUs. So basically, all of Apple iPhones are now using ARM processors. I think it's about ninety percent of all smartphones are based on ARM CPUs. Okay, interesting. So I think that's part of what Nvidia sees in this. They're kind of looking at it as a way of diversifying away from primarily making graphics cards into CPUs that they can license, and they're also using the the ARM CPUs in their data centers as well to complement their GPUs. Yep. And all this talks about chips, man, kind of have to touch on the, the global chip shortage. Mm-hmm. And so where's this shortage happening in the supply chain for NVIDIA and how's this affecting their business now and what does that look like potentially going forward? Yeah, so it's this, it's just about the supply coming into NVIDIA. They just can't get a hold of enough chips to kind of keep up with the demand that they're having for you know, either the gaming chips or their data centers and whatnot. So it's kind of limiting how much they can produce. So what parts are they waiting on? Where's the sticking point? Where's the bottleneck here? Yeah, so it's it's on the silicons that you use to like cast the actual processing units themselves. Okay. Basically just with the increase of people, consumers buying electronics products. Oh yeah, well chips are in everything, right? Like Absolutely all, everything. Every like vehicles, especially electronic vehicles use like five or six times the amount of chips that normal internal combustion engine vehicles do. Yeah. And then there's obviously every single electronic device has multiple of these chips in them. Yeah. Yeah, so as we're coming a more kind of technology advanced and as pandemic hit, people staying at home, buying more yeah, of course. and whatnot. The, the demand just overtook the supply and supply couldn't keep up. where anyone could have ever thought of going. So, I mean, NVIDIA, if they've entered into quite a few long-term commitments with multiple suppliers, which should look at alleviating this issue for them. But I, I mean, I think this is going to be an issue for them for the next 12 months or so. Yeah, it's not really something you'd ever buy or sell a business based on. Because it's really, it's a good thing because it's showing that there is all this freaking demand out there for their products and they literally can't get the parts from their suppliers quick enough. Yeah. And it's not like other suppliers are then overtaking them in market no. share. It's not isolated to NVIDIA. It's an industry-wide thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, back to NVIDIA, man. This is a, a business that their share price is up over 60 times in the last 10 years. And they're now looking at like, I think their, their valuation's over 500 billion bucks the last time I checked. Yeah. So this is, it's obviously been a very fast growing business up till now, but now all of a sudden it's this like monster, monster of a company. So do you see this valuation now limiting their future growth? How do you see that playing out? Not really. I mean, NVIDIA have basically based everything of what they've done so far on their GPUs for computer graphics and they're just starting to expand into new areas whether it be the the data centers or the AI acceleration programs or the self-driving cars so I mean the chips are used in all the self-driving car projects they're all working off NVIDIA chips right and these are all high demand areas and they're yeah as I say just getting into them so I I think they've still got a lot of growth left in them yeah well and in in the most recent period the revenue grew at like 75% year over year it's insane and talk to me, man. So you obviously said you have a, a personal relationship with the business from back when you were building computers, yep. you used a few of their chips. Yep. And what about as a shareholder, mate? Yeah, so I've invested with NVIDIA for a little over three years. They make up about 16.5% of my current portfolio. Nice. And was that something that you bought all at once or was it something that you bought an initial one and added to over time or has it grown to the point where you've had to sell some down or what's that look like for you? Uh, so I think I've bought in three or four times over those past three years, never sold. No intention to? No intention to, no. Very nice. And I mean, based on this conversation, I can see why. Personally, not one, I think, for me, just because it's technological hardware stuff that I don't really completely understand. Anyway, Sonos, man, this is one that's straight away, everyone recognizes it, I'm sure, as they make home speakers, right? So talk to me a bit about that business. Yeah, so Sonos, they design and develop wireless multi-room sound systems, and that's kind of helped change the way people listen to music around the house. It's a whole home music system that's convenient and 
relatively affordable. But they still target the higher end, right? Yeah, they're definitely operating in the premium space. So they kind of allow you to play music in every room of your house, whether that's all the speakers at the same time, a smaller subset or individually. And they basically just connect through your phone through an app, super simple linking process, or they can hook them up to your TV so you can use them when you're having those movie nights. And the app that they've developed is really a big part of why they've become so popular. It's just so simple to use and seamless integration. It just shows they've put a lot of thought into the design. And that app's that's not one that other businesses have been able to replicate. So people like Bose or JBL or... No, no, they've kind of set it up in a, in a unique way and no one's got the same functionality that they've got through it. You can make your playlist through the app or you can use your Spotify or where you can group speakers together to play at a certain time. The way they've done it is just... No one's been able to replicate it so far. Yeah, Sonos sounds like a really good deal. It sounds like an awesome product. So when are we going to bring it to Ramsey Avenue? What's the story there? Oh, one day we're going to hook up the whole house. You reckon? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. reckon, yeah, definitely. That's It's always a company that I've looked at for the past couple of years as a customer and gone, that'd be a fantastic thing to have. And now, so obviously in preparation for this show, when you told me you wanted to talk about Sonos, I had a quick Google and I read about some, some legal disputes they've had with Google. Mm-hmm. And so they reckon that Google have infringed on some of their patents. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, kind of a little bit. So Sonos, they do their speakers, but when the, the Googles, the Amazon started coming out, had voice commands, voice yeah. activation, they were looking at it and going, well, shit, we don't have that. It'd be nice to you know, kind of integrate that. So they approached Google, uh, I think it was about four, four and a half years ago, and kind of worked with them to bring the Google Assistant into the Sonos environment just so they could keep up with those guys. But from here, Google kind of did a sneaky and developed a product they call their Nest, which is kind of operating in the similar space that the Sonos products are. And it looks like they've taken a few of the technologies in terms of how they connect to each other and the way, I think, volume changes or something. Kind of real small, unique things. Minor details, but Sonos did have patents for them. They own the rights to them. So Sonos was kind of claiming that they'd stolen technology from them as they were working together as partners and Google's saying, no, 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 we've developed it alongside you. Which that happens a lot, right, in technological innovation. Like two sets of people or multiple sets of people starting from the same starting point with regards to all the different technologies they already have, they tend to make the same kind of realizations and make the same advancements in parallel. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't, like this one would be very much a coincidence that they just happen to be working together on very similar products. 100% exactly what you're saying. It happens. The only one that makes this one a bit like, oh, I don't know, is the fact that Sonos and Google were partners four years ago. And after that partnership is when they released the product. So it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't know, guys. Like, it's not looking great for you. So, yeah, Sonos was suing Google with five patent infringements. And a judge ruled that Google has, in fact, infringed on all five patents. This was a preliminary decision. And I think it's not for another month or two, mid-December, when they'll make the final ruling. And they'll decide, I guess, what the damages are. Obviously, Google will have to pay them out. But is there also the potential that they may have to get rid of or like switch up their technology in their Nest product so it's no longer infringing on Sonos' stuff or...? Nah, so I think kind of what they're looking at is Sonos getting like royalties from Google yeah, of course. For, yeah. the, for the product, which it's kind of good, but it's, you know, a bit of a double-edged sword because Sonos is also using Google Assistant in their products. So there's very much every opportunity that Google just, you know, pulls the rug out from under the mat. And that would disadvantage them by, I guess they could continue to work with companies like Bose and, and the other yeah. home speaker. I mean, it's not all bad news for Sonos. They're also working with Amazon and Alexa, so... It's not a total kind of, you know, they're shut out the door and when a voice voice kind of activation, voice commands, but definitely be a step in the wrong direction for them. But we'll see, we'll see what comes out of it, I guess. that They say they're trying to keep the business dealings and the lawsuit separate, but I don't know, people get salty. Yeah, of course. A couple of quick ones from me, man. I noted this is a relatively recent IPO. They only came public in 2018 at 20 bucks a share. And that share price has been quite volatile. It's been yeah. it's moved around quite a bit. So as low as seven bucks a share and right now trading around $32 a share. So it's going on from that, you a shareholder in Sonos? No, nah, I'm not currently a shareholder. Talking about their IPO, I mean, they kind of came at an unfortunate time, right? They IPO'd directly into COVID. 2018 is still like a good year, year and a bit yeah. beforehand. Yeah. It's a good time to raise money, right? Before yeah. there's a global pandemic. They did right for a while. COVID hit. And there was a chip shortage. So, I mean, looking at the share price and trying to correlate to how well they've done for their first three years, I guess. I'm not sure if it's the, the best indicator, but I mean, looking at their revenue, their sales, how they're traveling, I think that's a, possibly a bit better of an indicator in that. Oh, yeah. And that's always a better indicator of business performance. Please don't 
Yeah, like, no, don't I'm... do me like that. I'm just, <laughs> talking, I'm just talking about the share price purely for illustrative purposes. I oh, know, but I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it's like, oh, I, I don't know. I'd be taking fucking handfuls of salt for the share price. Oh, yeah, of course. And that revenue you said was up 52% year over year in the most recent quarter. Yeah. You say that's affected by the chip shortage on one direction, on the supply end, mm. but also kind of has to be affected on the demand end by people being stuck at home during the COVID pandemic, right? And people, not people being stuck at home anymore, but people choosing yeah. to spend more time at home. Yeah. And all this free money that's going out, people have, are putting away a lot more yeah. and there's a lot more uh, discretionary spending. And because people can't spend it on travel, yeah. they're spending it a lot more on these household products. And, you know, you've seen like used car prices are at like all-time highs yeah. and stuff like that because all this money that the same amount of money's coming in, but no money's going in the travel bucket. So everyone's spending on everything else. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I don't think that they're going to be operating at 52% year-over-year revenue increase going forwards. I think it will look healthy, not quite at those levels though. But they are kind of sitting in a growing market though. Looking at audio streaming services, they're growing around the 25% year-on-year mark. And to me, that indicates there's growth left in the home audio space. Well, I've got I've got a stat here. So Sonos did 1.6 billion in annual revenue in the most recent 12 months. Yeah. And that global home audio market is estimated about $25 billion. Yeah. But that's on a spectrum, right? Like there's a high end where companies like Bose and Sonos play. And there's also the low end, like the budget options. Like I've got a JBL, you got a UE Boom or... I got a Marley. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So based on that $25 billion market and you say the audio streaming is growing at 25% a year. And Sonos, what's their valuation right now? Do we have that on hand? Uh, it's, I think it's a bit over $4 billion. Well, that would be... It's got to be more than that, man. If they're doing $1.6 billion in revenue. Let's have a quick Google. No, market cap, $4 billion. Really? Yeah. Yeah, right. So $4 billion, wow. And growing at, yeah, fuck, at 52% year over year. Yeah, like they're, they're a very small company, especially out of the revenue they're generating. I definitely see you know, a chance for one of these bigger players to kind of muscle in on, on what they're doing. As in to copy their products or potentially acquire them? or Yeah, pretty more like copy what they're doing. I mean, that was what Google started to try and do with you know, the Nest and whatnot, but... I think there is enough points of difference for them to stay in that premium bracket, especially focused around sound quality. Because one of the things that they do really well is their true play feature. This is something only me and audiophiles will probably care about. But basically, the speakers, they'll play this sound, like a variety of tones, and your phone will use to record those sounds. And by doing this, it will analyze the frequency response of the room and adjust the equalization it's applying to the audio to compensate. And this particularly helps if the speakers, you know, placed in less than ideal position, like a corner of a room, it assures the speakers are kind of sounding the best they can. And it's something that no one else is doing. It's kind of unique to them that focus on quality audio no one else is really replicating that there's room to grow on the market they're doing something that's like a little niche as well as providing easy solutions for people listed music around the house or create home audio setups with speaker bars and subs and whatnot and one thing that is going to help them so they've announced that they're going to raise their prices this financial year potentially mm. and they're looking at a 6 to 13 percent increase across their range as long as that doesn't affect their demand that shows that obviously the brand's strong enough to boost up their prices without losing customers which could definitely go a long way to supporting future revenue growth yeah i mean exactly i think the fact they're operating in the top end of their market definitely helps because i'd say their typical consumers aren't too concerned about the price tag they're they're not changing their buying habits based on a six percent change in product price they're they're buying it because they want it and coming back to the company's valuation man so at four billion dollars do you think that sonos could potentially be acquired by like google's a over a trillion i don't know one point something trillion amazon's up there as well apple's up there they're all in this home audio market and it is a big growing market that a lot of these massive companies are very, very interested in. So do you see potentially one of them snapping up Sonos for just 4 billion bucks? Well, obviously they'd have to pay a premium. So potentially, you know, you'd look at an acquisition price maybe around between 6 and 8 billion. But yeah, do you see that potentially happening? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they've got a product that's proven that people love. that has got a really good brand reputation going along with it. So I'm not sure if it would be one of those companies that are already kind of developing their own niche in the audio space. Definitely could see them being acquired. And mate, I can see Google could solve all of these legal problems in one move. Google has freaking billions of dollars worth of cash. Yeah. Like they'd easily have over $50 billion worth of cash on the balance sheet. Yeah. They could buy Sonos and not even feel it. And drop in the bucket. Yeah. Absolutely. So just to round this off, man, you mentioned you weren't yet a shareholder in Sonos. No. Any intention to, or yeah. it's one you've been looking at closely or talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, so definitely looking at closer there at the very top of the watch list. No intentions to buy right at this stage, but like I said, very top, very top of the watch list. That's going to round out. Thanks for bringing those two companies along, man. NVIDIA and Sonos, two very interesting ones. That's been a pleasure and talking to you. No, oh, mate, you're not done yet. About these about companies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, 
originally had slated next, we were going to tell a story about the Waterworld CPR dummy and what really happened to that. But I think that in the interest of our reputation, potentially incriminating legal proceedings <laughs> and time, we're going to skip the story on the Waterworld CPR dummy and we'll potentially come back to it on another day. Yeah. You're happy with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no complaints. No. Was that one that you were looking forward to talking about or were you kind of happy to... I zero notes on it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was just going to go wherever it went. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that'll come up again sometime. But uh, for now, uh, let's go to some listener questions. Bit of backstory before the first one. Taylor and I are very often referred to as husband and wife and we kind of go along with it as well because, I mean, it's true, right? So, and you're obviously the husband and I'm the wife and, well, obviously, partly you have the, the big full drive and the, and the boss has motorbike and I've just got my little basic bitch Mazda 3. But not just that though, you're obviously much more of a man than me and it's honestly an honor to be your wife. Now, this first question comes from Annabelle and her question for you, Taylor, is how do you feel about your wife having a girlfriend? I mean, at the beginning, man, I'm going to be honest. It was tough. Really? The last thing any husband wants to hear from his wife is they found a new girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think some of the very, very first words to her uh, was something along the lines of, so this is who my husband is messing around with. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the first thing. Those were the very first very words first he said one. to her on yeah. poor deck at the yeah. arc. Yeah. And then Marcus rightfully yeeted me in the opposite direction yeah. and that was the end uh, of the conversation. <laughs> Yeah, that was, um, we were going away for, uh, we were going away to the Waterworld Beach House. Yeah. And we, you'd come in to, you come in to, yeah, because I just finished in the gym. Yeah, I just kind of have a chat with Jay. I didn't, yeah. didn't even know Annabelle was working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think she was kind of a bit like awkward because obviously we'd never met. She didn't know if I knew about you and her. Yeah, and our relationship at first, like, well, that was, we'd only been on one day. Yeah, exactly. It was, this was like two days after that. Yeah, this is two days after our first day. And yeah. we obviously kept it super, like, under tabs because we worked together. We kept it under yeah. tabs for quite a while. Yeah, because she didn't know if I knew yeah. or if I knew not to say anything. Yeah. So she was kind of, I think, a bit like, oh, fuck, what's going on here? And I was just like, oh, I'd like to go talk to her, but I really can't. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, she just think I'm ignoring her? But yeah. Like, so it was a bit of like a awkward back and forth interaction there but ah, that was alright <laughs> <laughs> no no very welcome addition to our family yeah but just back to our marriage and you know I think that we are the happiest <laughs> sexless domestic partnership of all time yeah I'd agree I'd agree just on that quick I guess sidebar what do you think have been the keys to that you know there's lots of stories of good friends moving in together and it kind of goes to shit like the yeah. they rub on each other and the relationship just goes down the tube but, you know, us living together has, like, really been seamless and it's just kind of, like, elevated our, our friendship and our, our marriage to the yeah. to the next level. Exactly. So, yeah, what do you think of the keys of that? I mean, I'd be lying if I said I know, but um, we just get on and live our lives, right? Like, we're both, both really busy, have a lot going on in the week, and it's not often that we get to sit around at the house at the same time. And it kind of means those times where our paths cross and we stop, sit down, have a chat about what we're doing. It's really special when we generally care about what the other person's having to say. Yeah, I think that we're focused on our own lives, but then at the same time, just when we do cross, have that, like you said, that genuine care and interest in what's going on in the other person's life. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, next question. So number two comes from Trent Rose, who's my brother. What are your thoughts, Taylor, on Code Brown's red hot start to the season? It's great to see the boys come out of the gates hot. I think we're growing pretty strong as a team in our D-grade fucking... Absolutely. Our defense is on point. Sometimes shooting a bit questionable. No, I'd agree. Dude, I reckon our defense is like, it's as good as it's ever been. Yeah, for sure. We've got that locked down. You're obviously Kobe Brown's team manager and that's probably the most important role and you're also improving on the court. Like, you bring a lot to the team. How do you feel personally about that, about your contributions? Definitely, definitely fairly strong on the defensive end. Offensive end, we're a bit of a liability. Uh, but you know, not a liability, mate. You're doing much. You're doing much better finishing under the hoop now. Like you're, you're automatic now when you get the ball under the under the hoop. Yeah, a lot of that's got to do with you know a couple of those one-on-one sessions we've had in the past, and yeah, going forward, choose the mornings. It's uh, de- definitely helping, kind of. Now I've got to follow on from this. Uh, Code Brown's potentially we could be on for a big run at the Premiership this year. So three games in, won our first game by four, yes. and then won by 46 and 27. Yeah. And those two games were really blowouts. So I guess the only thing is like they're still doing the grading period. So as long as we don't get moved up to the C grade, we're good. Now on that though, the idea of a Code Brown premiership tattoo has previously been floated around. 
Is that something you would potentially take part in? I can't say a D-grade championship tattoo is on the top of my to-do list. Maybe when we're in A-grade, we'll be a bit more enthusiastic about it. Gee, the A-grade. That's, that's going to be a fair way off. <laughs> fair. Like, that's how you feel. Can't say I agree. I think we should all get the co-brown logo right on the bum. Uh, but, yeah, that's just me. Now, we're going to go into two questions from Matt Parker. Matty P. His first question, he asked Taylor. What motivates you to be leading the league for fouls in Co-Brown? Matty P. So, what you don't understand is I played basketball since I was five years old and I've been in foul trouble since day one. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout my year, early years, almost all of my games, yeah, I, I'd say almost all of my games, I probably got fouled off You're more joking. than I didn't. Nah, no, nah. At five and six years old, you're fouling out. Yeah. <laughs> And all the way through teenage years, like it was... How old were you when you stopped playing basketball? Um, when you just started focusing on swimming? I played all through my time in Wyala, so, you know, 5 to 15. I came to Adelaide, I played Marriottville in year 10, 11. Yeah, 16, 17, I guess. And yeah, stopped in year 12 and didn't really pick it back up until Coe Brown started up again. And just always been a physical guy. Loves a bit of rough and tumble. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just haven't been able to, like, get around not fouling out. So, me and fouls have just have always been things. We've always been close. I've got a stat to follow on from that. Sure. So, you averaged 2.8 fouls per game last season, and you led the team. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, happy about that. Now, in the three games to start this season, you're only fouling 1.7 times a game. So, what's up with that? Have you gone soft? Yeah, look, that's low. Going through our stats, in game one, I hit the four fouls. So that's good to see. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened in game two and game three? Game two was a single foul. Game three was Zippo. Yeah, so what, Zippo. what happened this week? So oh, I think there's a combination of factors going on here. In game one, we had a fairly close game. And, we did, yeah. And I was playing low the whole game. Yeah. So that's like the perfect storm for me. Playing down in the post in a close game. To rack up rack up those fouls. Moving to games two and three, they were, they were blowouts. We won by you know 40 and 30 points. And we had a fairly tall team, so... My short ass was playing, playing up high. And so just the opportunities for foul weren't there. The opportunities, the opportunities to foul. They weren't there. We we're constantly on fast breaks, man. So, you know. Yeah, no, we, we did whip those two last teams. This week will be interesting. This week will be a good game. But Matty P, I'm confident my uh, foul average per game will creep up. I want to see you going at least three this week. Mm. I reckon your target's three because uh, as long as you're hitting three, you're going to get over that 2.8 per game. Yeah. You're going to beat your mark from last year. Yeah. Now, moving on to Matt's second question and the last of our four listener questions, and we finally get to one that's actually investing related. So Matt says, Taylor, do you find that you naturally gravitate to investing in companies in your field of work? Uh, yes, this is a really good question. The only kind of aerospace company that I own is Hico Corp. Pico or Hico? Is that pronounced? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> Doesn't matter. H-E-I-C-O. Yeah. Right? Hiker, whatever. It's still the same. So they focus on like aircraft replacement parts, both for commercial, regional, business and military aircraft, as well as developing things like electro, optic and other sensors. It's basically just avionics boxes that process visual information and a bunch of other specialized kind of avionics boxes. A lot of what they do is get cheaper than what the OEMs provide and they make. OEM? Original Equipment Manufacturer? Yep. 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 And they create yeah, custom accessory parts. So yeah, they're the only like real defense aerospace company that works directly in that field that I own. And I'm definitely interested in looking into companies that operate in the field I work primarily because you know, I understand them fairly well. But that's really where the bias ends. If I see an opportunity, then great. See a better opportunity uh, somewhere else, then head in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Just because you work in the space, you're not going to load up. You're not going to target like, I have to have 50% of my portfolio in defense companies. Nah, it just doesn't make sense. Like it's sure, you know, you know a bit more about them, so you might... Yeah, bias researching them, but that's yeah, that's how where it ends. Now, I did notice that the two companies you brought to our conversation today, Nvidia and Sonos, mm. they're both hardware technology businesses. Yeah, yeah. So obviously you're most interested in them. How do you find that your portfolio is constructed with different types of businesses and do those hardware businesses make up a significant portion of your portfolio? Yeah, they definitely do. I primarily find myself looking into companies that operate in the technology sector. It's to be able to kind of value a company and be confident about investing in them. I believe it's fairly important to have a you know, solid understanding about the business, how it's operating, competitors are, what challenges or hurdles they may face, and when you know different obstacles arise, assess those long-term impacts on the business. And you can't really do that if you don't understand 
Oh, totally. Yeah, you have to know. You have to know what you're buying into, and you have to be able to look at it from lots of different angles. Yeah, and like having the fairly technical background that I do, I find that I can kind of follow and recognize those trends better for the technology-based companies rather than say companies based around consumer sales. And just another aspect on that is that I find these technology-based companies a lot more interesting. Yeah. Which means like I'll keep digging into them long after I would have been got bored reading about how many fucking packets of Doritos Woolies have sold this yeah, fucking yeah. quarter. You know, it's. It's something that stimulates your curiosity and it's something that you want to learn about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Wait, but don't knock Doritos though. Mate, I rate Doritos. I just don't want to read about how many packets they've sold. Yeah, especially co-brown nacho nuts. Exactly. Now that we finally got an investing related question from one of our listeners, that'll probably do us. And so Taylor's going to close out the show with a joke. So the normal disclaimers and contact pieces, they're going to come after that and you can listen to them or skip them. Like, I don't really care. You do you. But... If you think you have what it takes to be the next guest on the Marcus Rose Money Show, hit us up and let's make some magic. All right, boss, your show. Close it out with a bang. What do you call two lesbians in a cupboard? Oh, God. A lick her cabinet. (laughs) What are you doing? Not a lesbian joke. (laughs) Oh, God. All right, bye. That'll do us. See ya. This was a long one, so thank you for sticking around and listening till the end. It would honestly be a massive help if you subscribed and reviewed the show on iTunes because that's what helps the show appear higher in search results. So that's what will help more people find it and that means that we can help more people become great investors. Also, please write in with any questions, stories, advice or jokes that you're keen to share. Everything that comes in, I'll read out and reply to on the show. So hit up the Facebook page, Marcus Rose, the Instagram, marcusrose.com.au or send an email to the at marcusrose.com.au Now, some of what you hear on this show could potentially sound like financial advice, but please trust me, it isn't. And nothing anyone ever says on this show is meant to come across as a recommendation because we're not trying to influence your personal position when it comes to any particular investment or financial product. That's just not how we roll. And we do believe in full transparency. So if I personally have a financial position in any investment that's mentioned, I'll always let you know. This show is really just for general education and a bit of fun. So please don't take it too seriously.